From training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 40. I'm really excited about today's podcast because I learned a ton while we recorded it. Um, also, it's one of the, the best dudes in baseball. Um, he's got a ton of wisdom to share, particularly with respect to off-speed pitching and really understanding who you are as a pitcher. So we're in for a real treat today with a guy who just started training with us this offseason. So I think you'll really enjoy it. If you want to develop faster and train better, you need the best gear. And with that said, we've got some really exciting news for you. The number one baseball brand in the world, Rawlings, has partnered with us at Cressy Sports Performance to make getting the best training gear for you more affordable. Simply head to Rawlings.com and use the coupon code Cressy20, that's C-R-E-S-S-E-Y 20 at checkout, and you'll save 20% off your order. This offer is only valid on select items, but there's a ton of great gear you'll save 20% on that will help you become a better player. So shop now. Again, that's Rawlings.com, R-A-W-L-I-N-G-S.com, and enter the coupon code Cressy20, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y 20 at checkout, and you'll get 20% off on your order. Some absolutely awesome baseball gear that we use every day with our pro guys. Today's guest is a right-handed pitcher who played high school baseball in California and was drafted by the Angels in the 39th round of the 2008 MLB draft. He chose not to sign and instead attended Dartmouth College for three years. In his junior season, he pitched to a 6-3 record and a 2.47 earned run average with 70 strikeouts and 62 innings pitched. It led to him being drafted by the Rangers in the eighth round of the 2011 MLB draft. He was traded to the Cubs at the 2012 trade deadline and won their Minor League Pitcher of the Year award in 2013. He made his MLB debut for the Cubs in 2004 and was named the National League Rookie of the Month that August. He finished his rookie season with a 7-2 win-loss record and a 2.46 ERA. Thereafter, he established himself as a mainstay in the Cubs rotation, finishing the 2016 season with a record of 16-8 in 190 innings pitched and an ERA of 2.13, which was the lowest in all of baseball. He became the first Cub to lead the National League in this stat since 1945 and the first to lead the majors since 1938. He also started games 3-7 and seven in the Cubs World Series win. At the time of this podcast, he's a career 63-43 with a 3.14 ERA. He's also both a New Balance and Rawlings athlete, so he reps two companies that have been huge supporters of Cressy Sports Performance. He started up with us this offseason as well. Please welcome to the show, Kyle Hendricks. Welcome to the show, Kyle. Of course, man. Anytime. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a lot of fun. I'm, I think uh, it was what we're up for. So I'm, I'm intrigued. You are a California guy that somehow wound up in New Hampshire for college at Dartmouth. How does that happen? <laughs> that's, that's a great question. Yeah. Uh, I have no idea. You know, uh, you're right. I was a California boy. Uh, I, I would have loved to stay, you know, stay close, stay in the mm-hmm. state. Um, but that's just not how it worked out. You know, um, my, my parents always put school on me. So mm-hmm. I, I did well in high school. I was getting good grades. And at that point, I honestly, I'm a little bit of a late bloomer. So mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't a huge prospect in high school or anything like that. So I, I had a few options coming out, you know, of high school in California. Um, but when it came down to it, it, it really came between Dartmouth and University of San Diego for my choice. Those are go. pretty extreme. Those, those definitely differences. Ve- exactly. Very different yeah. choices. But, you know, at the end of the day, 
I knew I would have an opportunity to play right away going mm-hmm. to Dartmouth. And that meant a lot to me just because, you know, I wasn't out there. My name wasn't out there. And if I could have gone to a bigger school like San Diego, a great baseball school, obviously, I think they were top 25, mm-hmm. you know, the past two years before I was looking at it. And, uh, it was just, I wasn't going to play probably till my junior year. And, mm-hmm. um, it just didn't feel right to me. And yeah. I don't know, after taking official visits to both places, it just put it in perspective. I, I loved everything about Dartmouth. Uh, and you're, it was so different and so new, um, mm-hmm. but I don't know what it was. It, I was just drawn to it. And I'm so happy I made the decision, though, because the, the three years I spent there, I would never trade it for anything. I, I loved every second of it. Absolutely. Now, you you also you, you were drafted out of high school. You kind of just talked yourself down as a prospect, but you were taken. Like, were you a guy that was a late bloomer, you know, into the senior year and the recruiting process just kind of happened late for you? Or, you know, was that one of those things where you, you know, you, it was a little bit of a pat on the butt and you weren't ready for pro ball at all at that time? Yes, it was a little bit of both. So yeah. I definitely, I was a late bloomer for sure. So, um, I really got at, started getting after it in the weight room after my junior year of high school. So mm-hmm. it was a little bit late for me. So yeah. I, I did make a jump my senior year. I started throwing a little bit harder. Uh, mm-hmm. I performed well. And so, yeah, I kind of got started late in the recruiting process. So the, everything was already over. Um, yeah. and I pretty much committed to Dartmouth, but at the end of the day, um, yeah, you know, I think I think everything works out for a reason, and I I did get drafted also out of high school, but again, yeah. like you said, it was almost a little bit of a pat on the butt. They at the time they knew I was already committed to Dartmouth. Yeah, they knew the kind of kid that I was in high school, so it was almost like, oh, you know, here we'll go, we'll throw you a bone, and you can say you got drafted, which was awesome. You know, yeah. it's great, yeah. great to say, but uh, but yeah, that, everybody has a different path. So, so I'm intrigued. We've asked. Um, I feel like we've had this conversation at the facility with like a bunch of our pro guys before. Now that. I mean, you look at the draft now, and I think if you turn on, like, the All-American games, like, there literally isn't a, a rising senior in any of those games who doesn't throw, like, 98-plus. You know, it's literally, you know, just a, a crazy velo spectacle. And, and obviously, you're not a guy that's blowing up radar guns at the big league level. Do you think Kyle Hendricks out of high school would be drafted if it was, you know, 2019 or 20? I don't think so. No, yeah. I think the game has gotten even more, just like you said, the game's yeah. gotten even more analytical and, yeah. you know, more velo oriented. So no, I really, it would have been even tougher for me in yeah. today's game, I think, for sure. Do you, now, did you always have like, uh, obviously like there's an elite change up, there's a great breaking ball, you know, you have a sinker, you throw a four seam. Did you always have that ability to manipulate the baseball even before you got, you know, stronger, more physically mature and, you know, had more and more coaching or was that something that came later? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, a little bit of both. I mean, I think I had the ability in me, but I didn't start to use it until a little bit later in my career. Yeah. So, so yeah, in high school, I mean, I was pretty much a four seam curveball guy. And I was, that was a completely different from what I, from what I am. Yeah. And then going to college, I, that's pretty much what I stuck with. I started to learn a change up a little bit. So I was forcing change up curveball. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had a, I had a bad year my sophomore year and I actually, I was in the Cape League. I still, I got a temporary contract there. So I just mm-hmm. went down to see, you know, okay, what's it all yeah. about? What do I got? And I kind of just started to figure out there that, okay, you know what, Kyle, like you're not going to be the guy that's going to throw mid nineties and, mm-hmm. and be able to sit there and stay there. You got to find, figure out another way. Mm-hmm. So I just started really diving into other parts of the game. Uh, you know, number one, I figured out I needed to make the ball move. And number two was I need to take full advantage of the mental side of the game, mm-hmm. you know? So those are two things I really started diving in kind of, you know, late in my college career. And then once I started playing minor league ball, uh, that's when I really started working on developing different pitches that's when my two seam came around mm-hmm. um and that's when my changeup really started to develop when i played like short season high a ball in there um but yeah i think the realization just came to me that 
I wasn't going to be this guy. And so I needed to find another option. Did you, you know, I, you always hear guys trying to develop a change up and it's one of those things where, you know, some guys have small hands. So there are certain grips that don't work for them. You know, some guys from their arm actions, just, it just doesn't play out. What was it for you? Was it, did you try a million different grips? Was it just a matter of, of never feeling like you could repeat the arm speed of your fastball? What was it that you struggle with early on? Cause usually you see guys with, I mean, like Tyler Beatty's one of our guys, and Tyler has had a big league changeup since he was like a freshman, sophomore in high school. He's got huge, like Pedro Martinez fingers, and it's always come naturally for him. Like that wasn't the case for you, obviously. What was the struggle? Yeah, yeah, like like you said, uh, the changeup is such a feel pitch. So there are there are a few guys that do get lucky, and they have mm-hmm. the feel right away, and it's just something they can throw. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think for a lot of guys, the changeup is a pitch that has to be developed, you know. And so the only way to do it, and since it's a feel pitch, is just to throw it over and over again. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I I messed around with a few different grips, and the problem is you don't know how long to kind of stick with one, you know, yeah. or the other, because you do have to throw it for a long time to get the feel, but you want to make sure that going to have the right action you know or get the right results when you bring it into a game so so yeah it was that whole process but at the end of the day um the hitter tells you everything you need to know in my opinion so I started learning at a time where I could just take it right into the game you know I was in I went out in college and I just started throwing it in the game and the hitters you know their reactions to it the swings they were taking that started to teach me kind of you know the movement on the ball what I was looking for mm-hmm. and then so which grip I could kind of trust or what I should mm-hmm. what I should work on more and once I found a grip that I liked that started working against the hitters, then I just kind of went all in on it. Every every day I would go out and play catch. You know, I'd start getting my arm loose, throw a few fastballs, but I would throw a ton of changeups, just going out to 90 feet, you know, just throw, use that grip, throw it over and over and over. Mm-hmm. And over about a two-year span, just by doing that, I mean, it was a world of difference. The, the feel I had for it, I could manipulate the baseball more. And it almost translated over to my fastball, too. It helped me learn how to throw a two-seam better. Did, yeah, so that was the first two years in pro ball you're, you're referring to? or Yes, yes. Like right at the end of college, probably my junior year of college, and then first two years of pro ball, yeah. It's interesting because, like, I know talking with, like, Kluber, his changeup came around when he made it feel like his fastball. You know, like when it was a comfortable grip for him. Like, you're almost saying the opposite, that the changeup came first and then it made your sinker that much better. Is that is, – yeah. is the grip that comparable or, or how do you throw it? Yeah, the grip necessarily isn't comparable, just mm-hmm. the ball position. So, I mean, if you picture a regular two-seam, mm-hmm. like you throw a regular two-seam, I just throw my changeup grip right over that. But mm-hmm. – for me, I had always kind of tried, you know, holding it soft, doing this, doing that. And the key that made my change up and the feel for me was trying to get my pinky as high up on top of the baseball as I could. So when I got comfortable being able to just hold the ball like that, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's a normal circle change grip. But when I could get my pinky kind of as far up on top as I could and then just pronate it, I was able to take more and more speed off it. And I was able to throw it like my fastball, like you said, like Kluber. But it almost, yeah, I it really did come first. I think the changeup and learning how to ma- manipulate that came, and then the fastball movement. Just I tried to mirror it. Yeah. When you talk about like that late pronation, like is it in your mind to try to stay on the baseball as long as you can? Like I know that's a that's a Scherzer line. I'm not sure if it if it relates the same way to you, or are you are you trying to stay on the baseball longer with a changeup than you are on a fastball? For sure, for sure. I think my thought is pretty similar for all pitches. I'm really you trying to stay on everything and get it as far out front as you can. Yeah, I'm trying to pronate my changeup as much as I can, but it's not like I'm doing it from way back in my delivery and spinning out, you know, and yeah. just trying to spin the baseball up there. Yeah, you, 
I'm trying to get as much extension as I can out yeah. front and almost you're proning it, but you're trying to get over the top of the ball is mm-hmm. almost the feeling of it. And you're almost like you're dropping it in on home plate yeah. like that. Yeah. You don't, you're trying to make the ball move and create it. You know, that's, that's going to be detrimental to the it's still final la- result. It's still late arm speed. That's the goal. hundred percent, hundred percent, all laid out front. So yep. I, te- I texted you advance notice on this one. So I talked to a few different people that we were, we were doing this call tonight. I was like, Hey, give me some questions. And, and among other people, Mark Lowy, who you sat down with with cap when you were in the facility a, a couple months ago, he's like, you got to ask him about the cut change up. It's like this, this mythical creature that everyone wants. Nobody understands. And you're one of maybe, what do you think? Three or four guys that, that does it intentionally. Um, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So how does a cut change up, uh, compare in terms of thought process, uh, arm action, uh, actual grip compared to what you do, on a regular kind of arm side changeup. Yeah, it's it's all very very similar. I would say the only difference is so the cut changeup is a four seam, a four seam grip, same same hand position though. I try and get my pinky as high up on top as I can. Okay. Same circle changeup grip. And then the the two seam one is just on the two seam fastball grip, you know? So yep. but for the four seam, I'm really not pronating it. So my thought it, I, the cut changeup was actually the first changeup I had cuz in college I was really? a four seam guy. So I started trying to throw a four seam changeup and I, I didn't pronate it. I just kind of stayed straight, like kept my wrist kind of stiff, mm-hmm. just got over the ball, was trying to just take velo off of it. And mm-hmm. it would just kind of go straight down or cut a little bit. And then as it evolved in pro ball, when I started trying to throw a two seam fastball, then the two seam changeup, my two seam changeup is definitely my better changeup. Mm-hmm. But after I learned my two seam changeup, I, I learned, okay, I need to actually put work in on this four seam changeup. I can't just throw it normally yeah. anymore. So really the thought is, yeah, you want to get over the top of the ball and just kind of, I don't know, not, I guess not pronate. Keep your wrist yeah. straight so you don't pronate. Keep it a straight through. You want to get out though, mm-hmm. out front, over top of the ball. And you'll see when it, when it comes out of your hand, you don't want it just taken off, you know, mm-hmm. going and cutting immediately. You want to yep. make sure it's, you know, has that illusion of the fastball. So it's coming out, going straight and then. Slowly just, just going off to the right. But I think between your thumb and your pinky position that you have on it, you know, you can mess around with the pressures and, yep. and it, like I said, it's, it's the same as the other changeup. It's all a field pitch. So you yep. just have to throw it and throw it and try and learn how to just, you know, make it move a little bit the other way. When you're throwing to your catchers, do they call it differently? Like, will they, will they actually just call a changeup and you do what you want to it and it's the pitch is slow enough that they can react to wherever it is or do you have to differentiate? Yeah, no. So we don't have to differentiate. Our, our guys are so good. And at this mm-hmm. level, yeah. you know, maybe if you're younger, you might have to let them know. But even yeah. when I'm throwing a four seam and a two seam fastball, they don't need to know the difference. Yeah. You know, so, so no, I, they just put down a changeup. But to be honest with you, most of the time, there's a situation where I'm going to throw the four seam changeup and there's a situation where I'm going to throw the two seam changeup. Mm-hmm. And so depending on what hitter it is, uh, you know, situation, trying to get a ground ball, fly ball, mm-hmm. whatever, you, most of the time the catcher will usually know which one's probably coming based on what hitter's up there. But no, the, there's no differentiating between them. Um, so you hinted at the mental side of the game. And one of the things that I think it actually pairs well with, so in 2016, which was probably your career year, obviously like started game seven of the World Series, career high in innings between the regular season and postseason, you led Major League Baseball in first pitch strike percentage. Um, we actually had Miles Michaelis on the podcast a while back, and I think he led Major League Baseball in 2018, which was a breakout year for him. 
talk to me about the importance of fi- first pitch strikes for you. Like, how do you, how do you view that in terms of setting things up? Are you a guy that it has to be Oh one, or do you view one, one kind of the same way? Like what goes through your thought process and throwing, it was 68.6% first pitch strikes in 2016. Yeah. I mean, it, just to be su- a successful pitcher, I think at any level, first pitch strikes has to be huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you're constantly getting one Oh, uh, given that advantage to the hitter, you're going to get in more trouble, you know, more often than not. So yeah, it, it's a huge part of the game for me. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, the further up you get, so in the big leagues now, you know, there's so much video. You you can watch video for days on all these hitters. And so going into a start, um, some guy there's some guys where you don't mind falling behind one zero on. Mm-hmm. I guess I would say, you know, if there's a guy that's ultra aggressive and yeah. jumps all over first pitches all the time, you know, you can take that chance of going strike to ball and falling behind one Oh, and you, you really don't mind too much, mm-hmm. but most, most of the time overall. Yeah. And these hitters are so good. You, you definitely want to be Oh one rather than one Oh and one, one, like you said, mentioning that count, that's definitely one of the most important counts in pitching. Um, the difference between going two one and one two, mm-hmm. you know, but there are a lot of different ways to get strike two. Mm-hmm. And that's a thing you have to realize. It doesn't have to be a called strike. You can get a foul ball. You can get a swing and a miss from strike to ball. So I think, just having the right preparation, you know, and going into a game and knowing where you can get those easy strikes to get yeah. yourself an advantage counts. That's a big part of the game too. Well, I was going to say, you've got a couple of like 80 something pitch complete games on your belt. So there's, there's something to be said about getting easy outs, you know, on first pitch strikes that guys roll over and things like that too. Yeah, definitely. That That's my game. You know, I'm not going to be out there striking out 15 a game. So mm-hmm. I got to, I'm pitching a contact trying to get guys in and out of the box as quick as possible. Yeah. Um, one of the things I'm, I'm also curious about. So in that same year, 2016, you definitely, uh, added more four seams. So it was kind of your highest four seam usage of your career. So it was, it was almost like a revitalization of a pitch you had used in college and maybe a little bit more sparingly in the minor leagues. What, what led you to kind of use more four seams in 2016? Was it, was it something about your pitch mix or, you know, a way to get guys off, you know, balls down in the zone? What was the, the mindset behind upping that usage that year? Yeah, I think it was just a realization of uh, we needed to attack a lot of these left-handed hitters I was facing at the time differently than I yeah. had been. You know, um, I, I talked about how much I worked on my sinker in the in the minor leagues, and mm-hmm. when I came up my first year, uh, you know, it was a gr- it was a really good pitch. I could get it down and away. I could throw it in on guys. Good ground ball pitch for me. Um, but then after being in the league for you know a year or two, even the hitters are making all the adjustments they can, you know, it's, it's in real time. So I just started to realize that even good pitches like down and away to a left-handed hitter, a good two seam down and away to a lot of guys was just getting, it was getting squared up more yeah. often than not. So um, I had a pitching coach in AAA, Bruce Walton actually, who talked to me a lot about bat paths and, mm-hmm. you know, swing paths basically. And so I'd done a lot of work as far as watching video, trying to learn what those different, what those were, you know, and how to see it and then how to break it down in a game to see how a guy was, how a guy's bat path was working. Mm-hmm. So what I just started to see was that a lot of left-handed bat paths just went right along a two-seam pitch, you know. So I just went out for a game one time and just started, I was like, you know what, let me try my four. It doesn't matter what the velo is, but just the action of the pitch being straighter yeah. than the two-seam will combat what, you know, kind of the little loop in the left-handed swing. Mm-hmm. So I just went out in a game and started throwing a lot of four seam fastballs and I started getting foul balls, pop ups, you know, I'm, I wasn't being so stubborn going out there. Let's, oh, I need to get ground balls. I'm a yeah. two seam guy. I need to go out and pitch for ground balls. I started to learn, no, you know, I can just, I can just get 
easy contact and outs and out. Yeah. So I just, uh, it, it was a lot of help from the pitching coaches we had around at the time too. You know, mm-hmm. they, they brought it to my realization that this is something you should try. Let's go yeah. out and do it and see what happens. And luckily it went out there and I mean, the results came, but, uh, yeah. you know, reading swings and bat passes is, is a huge part of my game and yeah. definitely a big factor to determine what, like a, between a four seam and a two seam, what you're going to throw to a guy. Is, is it also just like a margin for error type thing where, you know, like throwing a front hip two seamer is not an easy thing to do. It's probably the hardest pitch to execute in baseball. Like, do you feel like you get more margin for error with that four seam into a lefty? Like it just gives you a little bit more wiggle room to not have to be so cute with it. 100%. That's exactly right. I, I got, it got to the point where the margin for error, if I was throwing a two seam down away to a lefty, it had to be in a perfect spot. It had to be absolutely, you know, perfectly executed. And so you have no room for error there. And I, when I started throwing these more four seam fastballs, oh, I could miss by a little bit and you're still going to get bad contact. So exactly. I started to learn where to look to have more margin for error. So I didn't have to be so perfect all the time. No doubt about it. All right. And you, so you talked about video a lot and actually Mike King um, was a previous guest and Mike talked about like going to every start, like he wants to see, you know, the last 25 at bats for, uh, you know, right-handed hitters and, you know, things like that. What's, what's kind of your approach going into a game? Do you look at recent stuff? Do you go back and look at notes on guys that you've faced dozens of times? What's your, what's your kind of personal scouting report and how does it combine with what the team gives you? Yeah. So personally, I guess I, I do go more recent, but I'll probably look in the last two to three months. Mm-hmm. You know, so at the very beginning of a season, I'll still look at maybe a few spring training games or games from the end of last season or something, you know. Um, but as you get going into the season, I'll watch uh, probably the last two months worth um, of data. Um, and yeah, it, it pairs up. We have such a good staff with the Cubs that the, the scouting reports they put together, we have between Mike Borzello, Tommy Hadovy, our pitching coach. Um, Borzello, he's been doing it forever. Just mm-hmm. the way he breaks down video and sets up these scouting reports, it it's such a good starting point for me. It basically breaks down every hitter into, okay, OO, kind of what their approach is, or aggressive, passive, what they're looking for, middle counts, where you can attack them, what they're trying to do, and then finish, you know, two strike or finishing pitches, where, where to go. So being able to just start with all that information is huge because I don't have to, you know, go and do all, all this extra work on top of it. So it allows me to, to just watch more clips, you know, yep. more visual clips of actual swings. So what I'll do is I'll just sit down and, like I said, so from the last two months, let's say, I'll just start OO. I'll look at the first hitter, the leadoff hitter, start an OO count, and just look at the pitch data, see kind of where his swings are coming, when he's aggressive, when he's passive, what what he's swinging at, you know, if it's off-speed, fastballs, so, so on and so forth. And then from there, I'll go to middle counts, and I'll look at where I have fastballs in middle counts, where I can attack them, same for off-speed. So, you know, it's kind of playing this game and putting this puzzle together of knowing where all your options are throughout all the different counts and then being just taking that on the mound and, I guess, deciding which one's going to be best at the time to throw. Yeah. You talked about the mental side of the game being like a game changer for you that you you figured out when you were in the Cape League. Uh, elaborate a little bit more. Like, what was it then? What is it now? Like, Actually, Bob Tewksbury has been a guest on the show. I know he's, he's spent some time with you and with the Cubs. Like, what what do you use on a daily basis? What worked for you in the past? Like, how has it evolved over time? Yeah, so it's it has evolved, but a lot of it stayed the same. Starting in the Cape, I just I picked up the Mental ABCs of Baseball, um, you know, book from Dorfman. Yeah. Um, and that really just opened up a whole new world for me. And I actually started. I didn't, you know, uh, Greg Maddox, obviously one of the best ever, but. Um, 
I didn't get to see a whole lot of him. I, I watched him pitch a little bit late in his career, but mm-hmm. I started watching some interviews and stuff on him, you know, and mm-hmm. just how much he talked about the mental side of the game and how much yeah. he focused on it and how much it helped him. And so it basically came down for me when I started reading that book is just to simplify everything. And mm-hmm. so I, I started going out in Cape games or when I went back from my junior year at college, I started just experimenting with it. And I was like, when I, let me go out there take the mound and let me just, let's try just to have one thought. I don't care what the catcher can call, whatever pitch he wants. You know, I'm not going to really look at the hitter. But my one focus is going to be make a good pitch, not not be perfect, you know, but go out and make a good pitch. And I just started experimenting with it, and I noticed just how much it opened up for me, you know, and, and the, it slowed the game down, and I could think through an at-bat. I could see a hitter better. I could see what his swings looked like better. So I guess that's where it started, and from there I just – I pretty much keep with that. So throughout the year, I'll, I'll pick up the mental ABCs, you know, the day before I start and I'll read through one or two of them, depending on how I feel sometimes three or four. Um, you know, you know, when you're in a good mental state and you know, when you're not, uh, yeah. you can kind of feel the difference. So just trying to keep the consistency and, and keep that same approach. So every time I go out there, it's the same simplified mental approach, but you know, focused and, and in that zone kind of. Do you, um, do you keep journals like right up after you start or how do you attack that? No, I, so I've never really been a huge journal guy. Um, you know, a lot of people have, have told me to try it. And even I've talked to Tukes about this a lot yeah. actually too, uh, cause he's worked mm-hmm. with us. So mm-hmm. I, I have messed around a little bit with it mm-hmm. for me. Um, I don't know. I just, I can remember a lot of the things, yeah. a lot of the guys I faced for some reason, and I can mm-hmm. remember the sequences I've used and then. When I go back and watch a video, sometimes I'll go back and watch like an old at bat. And I just, I don't really have a problem, I guess, with remembering kind of what I was trying to do in a situation. So it just isn't something I've used, you know, um, it's just not for me, you know, yeah. different things for different people. But. No doubt. I always remember, uh, I worked with Kurt Schilling, like at the at tail end of his clear career and Kurt talked about how, you know, he played alongside Pedro. Pedro could always read swings like in real time. Like in games, he could see it, you know, even from the dugout. And Kurt was always adamant, like, I can never do that. Like, I had to go and watch video. And like, Kluber's a guy who can read swings. Are you a guy that can see it in real time, or do you do you have to go back and watch video between innings or after the fact? Yeah, no, I I've gotten to the point now where I can see it in real time. You know, yeah. if if I'm not in a good mental state or not focused or locked in, though, then no, I won't be able to to lock in and see it. Mm-hmm. But um, that pitching coach that I was talking about, Bruce Walton, I had in AAA. Yeah. We, we talked about it so much and I started focusing on it so much when I got to the big leagues that it definitely has gotten to be part of my game now. And I think the preparation and watching the video of how a guy, how a guy's swing is already, you know, before I go yeah. into a game, seeing how he swings against a four seam and a two seam fastball. And then I go out and I'm throwing it against him. Mm-hmm. It just, it makes it very easy. Yeah. I can see, you know, if he's swinging just a little bit under it, a little bit over it or what he's trying to do. I've, it's gotten to the point now where I'm able to read them in game, but it, it's just not an ability that you're born with. No. So, so it's something you can definitely work on and, and it's like any other, uh, you know, skill for sure. I'm, I'm curious. Um, so back when, um, when Brian LaHare was in Chicago, which I think was like, uh, 2011, 12, um, one of the things he talked about was that nobody really understands like how much of an adjustment is for Cubs players to play so many day games, um, where, you know, you get back late and you have a, a 12 o'clock game the next day. And he talked about how some of the veterans really like took him under the, his wing. How different is, is your prep for, you know, like an early afternoon start on a regular basis compared to playing at just, you know, a normal 7 PM start. 
Yeah, definitely. So I guess the what changes is just what you do throughout the day, you know. Yeah. So for a day game, you just know you got to get to bed a lot earlier, and then from the moment you wake up, it's pretty much get ready and go, and then yeah. and then you're pretty much pitching in the game. Whereas the night game, you know, you can stay up a little later if you want, but you yeah. can sleep in. You got all day to just kind of hang out and lay around. Um, but like you said, for me. I was lucky that I got called up with the Cubs, so yeah, I really, it's all you've I mean, it, even in the minor leagues, yeah, you play a lot of day games there, too, so it wasn't a huge transition for me. It, it was a little tough. Um, you just have to learn your timing, you know, and yeah. I think the biggest thing, like I said, is you just got to be able to get to bed at, at a reasonable time. Sometimes if you're playing a night game, then you're pitching a day game the next day, like, you know, you can be still wired just from watching yeah. your guys and whatever's happened that night, so... Mm. That's probably the toughest part. But other than that, no, I, I keep everything the same. Um, yeah. I have the same timing from when I get to the field, and yeah. it's just maybe a little different meals because it's a shorter day. But, mm-hmm. no, you get you get used to the routine, and uh, I don't mind at all. You know, you kind of take both for what they are. Are you a guy that, like, totally tunes out baseball when you leave the park? Or, like, will you if you're, you know, you play a day game on a Sunday afternoon, will you turn on Sunday night baseball, or you you lock it out at that time? Um, I would say I'm in between. Um, yeah. Most of the time I'm locking it out, I would yeah. say. You know, most of the time I get away from the field and I'm just yeah. kind of getting away. And I, I just need my time. I just need to decompress, especially if I had pitched or something, yeah. you know. Just need to get away from it. But there's definitely times, I, I mean, I love baseball so much yeah. that, you know, I, I stay connected to the game, and that's how it always is. So mm-hmm. there, there's times throughout the year where maybe – you're a little more tired than you would be normally, you know, so I'll stay away yeah. from it. But then when I'm feeling good and energized, I'll watch baseball for, I'll turn on Sunday night baseball or whatever it is at the time for sure. I'm always curious when you, when you have a high academic guy, right? Someone who goes to a, you know, Harvard or Dartmouth or Yale or whatever it may be. Is there a, is there like a constant struggle to, to, to not go too far down the analytics rabbit hole, you know, cause you, you and I both know you can look at TrackMan data and you can, you can get lost in it for 15 hours and before you know it, it's 3 a.m. and you don't know what you've been staring at. Have you had to, stri- have you had to work with that knowing how intuitive like you are with this stuff and how much you, you take pride in your preparation or is it something that you've always had a good balance with? Yeah, no, I, it, it's a good question. I've definitely, it's definitely something I've had to work with, you know, like you said, I think just, uh, it's more in our nature, I guess, from guys that go to, you know, higher academic schools in a way yeah. that that's kind of what got them to that point. So it's, I think, what they would like to rely on going forward. Yeah. So, yeah, a lot of guys can really go down that rabbit hole and, and start looking at all the data and forget that at the end of the day, you know, that your job is to get the hitter out that's standing, mm-hmm. you know, 60 feet away. So it, it I think a lot of it, too, is the, the people around you, yeah. um, someone like us coming in and, you know, playing for an organization. Mm-hmm. the staff and the people around might think, Oh, he, you know, he's going to want all this kind of information. He's going to want to look at all this stuff. And so I'm, I'm really not that guy. You know, yeah. I, I look at a little bit of analytics, but at the end of the day, it's, it's, we, we have such good people around now that it's gotten to the point where they look at all my analytical numbers and, and where I'm at when I'm good. Mm-hmm. And then if I start to stray away or, or start to get off track, then they'll come to me. And we'll start to look at the numbers and see what's going on. But it's not something where after a start, I go back into the clubhouse and I'm looking at what my spin rates were or whatever, you know, my efficiency and all this. Um, yeah. But there, so much, so much of that stuff can help you. You know, yeah. you're right. So if you're trying to improve, trying to make a new pitch, um, there are certain things in there that can help. I think you just have to be careful and you just got to know what's good, you know, and what can help you at what time. Um, yeah. um, one of the things I, I remember uh, Mark saying after you guys met you and Cap and him 
he commented on how when you were locked in, you talked about being able to see the ball like all the way to home plate. Like it was like, is it, you know, obviously you can't see the ball out of your hand when you're throwing it at high velocities and it's a, you know, the fastest motion in all of sports. But describe to me, like, uh, elaborate on that a little bit more because I've never heard that before and I, I'm, I'm really intrigued at what it meant. Yeah. Uh, for some reason for me, you know, just keeping my head on it, I've, I've had mm-hmm. a tendency to want to spin off. I've, I've been rotational in the past, you know, mm-hmm. and, and so I guess a cue and I've, one thing I've noticed is when I'm always at my best, it, it starts playing catch and then it translates to even when I go to a game in a full windup or whatever it is. But mm-hmm. I get to a point where my arm slots in a way and my eyes are locked in on the target and, mentally I'm so, you know, in a zone that you're really, you're releasing the ball and you see it pretty much, you see it the whole way and you see it go right into the glove, you know, and it might be easier to explain, I guess, when you're, when you're not good, you know, cause yeah. when, when it's not going well, you can tell right away, you know, the ball's coming out and you just, you don't have the same visual. You don't mm-hmm. see it go right. You don't, okay. It did, it hit the spot at the glove, but not exactly, you know, you kind of mm-hmm. pick it up right at the last second, maybe as it's hitting the glove, um, or you're, you're just a little bit off, you know? So it's, it's just something for me. I think everybody has their certain three or four cues, you know, yeah. whether it's something at hundred percent mechanical or whether mm-hmm. it's a mental thought, but I feel like everybody's got, you know, three or four things that they always have when they're good. Yeah. And so I've just, over the years, I've gotten to know kind of what a few of those are. And yeah. one of them is just this visual of how I see the ball coming out of my hand, you know, mm-hmm. and so just trying to search for that always, do, yeah. Do you have like a like an aha moment in the bullpen when you know it's going to be a good day? Like, is there a certain pitch that you execute that you know everything else has a trickle down effect from it? Like, is it a front hip two seamer? Like, what is it that that tells you that things are going to jive well that day? Yeah, for me, it's always been the down and away, the glove side two seam, mm-hmm. you know, and out of the windup specifically. If mm-hmm. everything kind of works for me out of the windup, if my windup, my timing's good and I can get down and away and I'm getting depth on my two seam over there, then that means, you know, that means I'm in line, I'm out front, everything's on time mm-hmm. and the ball's moving the right way. And then my, my stretch is kind of very simple from there and it mm-hmm. takes the same arm stroke going forward. So yeah, I would say, when I get in a pen, my, my focus is always going to be on that glove side down away two seam. Mm-hmm. And then like, again, though, that's just for me. I've heard a lot of guys that it's, Oh, when I start throwing my breaking ball and I get out front, that mm-hmm. locks me in and you know, it gets my arm slot, right? So just for me, it happens to be yeah, two seam down away. And I mean, I think there's so many younger players who are just starting with two seams that like two seams are tricky. You can fall in love with bad two seams because they run like crazy and you see tons of movement and they don't go exactly where you want. Those are the ones that find barrels when you get to, you know, higher levels if you're not careful. So exactly, exactly. Again, the hitter is going to tell you everything you need to know. So I, yeah. I messed around with different two seam grips and I went out there and I, you know, it was moving like crazy. It was moving three feet, but so the hitter saw it moving right out of your hand too, you know? So he, yeah. he sees it moving the whole way in and he squares it up. Exactly. Like you said, so it's working to find the right one that has the late movement that mm-hmm. isn't recognized by the hitter. And when you start throwing it in games and you see the swings guys are taking, they'll yeah. tell you exactly what's going on. Um, yeah. So I'm curious when you, when you get out in long toss, I mean, are you throwing the four seam or the two seam a lot? I mean, is it four seam when you're out there and then you're ripping off sinkers as you do your pull downs or how do you attack it during your pregame throwing? Yeah, so during pregame, I'm throwing all four seams. I yep. throw four seams all the way out and then all the way back in. And then when I when I get all the way in, uh, you know, right at about 60 feet, I'll throw some pitches, you know. Mm-hmm. So I'll throw two four seams and then I'll start throwing, I'll throw six or eight two seams to get the feel of it there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I really, and that's another thing for me. I started throwing a cutter maybe four or five years ago mm-hmm. and um, it really got me away from 
my two seam movement and then I couldn't really throw a true four seam off of it. You know, I started getting stubborn with it. Mm -hmm. So I I decided to just trash it. And ever since then, I've noticed just being able to stay behind a four seam, especially when I'm long tossing and going out far. Mm -hmm. It's just a key for me being able to stay behind it, get true four seam spin. It just, it gets me. So I'm in the right, you know, I'm in the right uh, area. I guess my arm slots, right. And my body's working the right way. That's good. Good info. Now I'm, I'm curious. So you, obviously like there are a bunch of pitchers out there and everybody wants to throw a hundred, right? But there are a bunch of guys out there who don't throw hard. And, you know, certainly the number one recommendation is train your butt off, get on aggressive throwing programs, you know, work hard and, and learn to throw hard. But there are also guys that, you know, you know, their, their genetic ceiling, maybe 90 to 92 or whatever it is. What are, what are your recommendations to guys out there, you know, who, who don't have that elite velo potential, who are going to have to work their hardest to be an 80 at 91 guy? Um, like what would your suggestions be for that, you know, that college junior like you were at, at Dartmouth that wants to take the next step? Where, where are the competitive advantages that, you know, they can, they can dig themselves out of that hole, so to speak? Yeah, totally. Uh, that's a great question. I think you got to look at what your strengths are, you know? So I think like I was talking about a little earlier, when you know you're not going to be the guy that's going to throw 95, there's no problem with still working hard. You know, you need to work out. You need to stay in shape. You need to be as strong and, you know, as powerful and as in shape as you can be for just injury prevention reasons alone, you know? So number one, I guess you need to be uh, durable if you're not going to be able to throw hard. And then also kind of like I was talking, you just need to figure out how to make the ball move. So there, there becomes a process in there, you know, that when you start going down that road and, and uh, the mental game comes into it, too. You have to be able to, you know, just see what your strengths are. Mm-hmm. Learn, your, Use your mental game more. Use the movement on the ball more. And so to learn how to do that, I guess, you just use all the resources that are around you. You just we watch the game as much as you can. You know, watch guys that are similar to you. Watch pitches that are similar to what you're trying to maybe do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, there, you know, there's so much on the Internet these days, too. You go on YouTube and just just dive into these rabbit holes and try and learn about the game, learn about pitching, learn about the intricacies of hitters, you know, like learning their body language, small things like that. You need to, if you're not going to throw hard and, you know, and be able to just go out there and wing it, then you need to use everything to your advantage, I guess, is what I would say. So uh, go down every avenue, use every path and lean on your resources but again you just have to use your strengths at the end of the day i think it's interesting you'll see a million videos on on twitter and instagram of guys trying to throw like 104 miles an hour with a three ounce ball on a pull down throw or you know they'll they'll be back squatting 500 pounds whatever it is but if you ask them to pick up a book about pitching and read it it would be unheard of you know so like mm-hmm. there's a lot, a lot of stones that guys don't uh you know turn over in their in their quest to actually work hard Oh, 100%. Yeah. And if you're trying to be the best, you know, or, or get to the elite level, you, you got to do everything possible. So mm-hmm. just focusing on one thing alone is never going to get you there for nice. sure. All right. Well, we always do a lightning round at the end. Um, cool. and, I'm, and I'm actually, in, I'm curious to get, so this is a very, very high compliment. I asked this question of Brandon Kinsler and he said that you are his favorite pitcher to watch. So really? We always ask, wow. who, who's your favorite pitcher to watch in today's game? He said it because you basically show him how to pitch to a lineup because you yeah, guys yeah. Are, are, are comparable. So, um, but that's high praise from Kinsler. He's very thrifty. I'll, with I'll, his, trust me. I'll, anything from Kins, I'll take. He's, Any he's thr- thrifty with his affection. Um, very, very so, much so. So with that said, who is yours? Oh, uh, it's pretty easy for me to go to Grom. I mean, yeah. I, I love watching him. Just number one, the elite stuff, but he pitches with it too. You can just tell, you know, um, Scherz is another guy up there, obviously, but just watching Jake, the things he does going out there every day, staying healthy. Uh, and the, the last few years, just how dominant he's been. I mean, how, how do you not love watching him? 
Absolutely. Um, how about some advice for a teenage Kyle Hendricks? If you go back in time and tell a 16 year old Kyle to do something differently, what would it be? Man, I, I would say do nothing different. I would say just, right. just trust what you have. Kind of like I was telling everybody yeah. earlier, you know, if, if you know you're not going to throw a hundred, just, yeah. I would say I would want myself to be more secure with the fact that knowing I'm not going to throw hard, I guess yeah. would be the thing. Just trust it earlier and trust that, you know, the other avenues I'm going to go are going to work. I'm yeah. curious what you were, I want to say you were eighth rounder or out of, out of Dartmouth. Yeah. Where, where'd you go? Yeah. Now, with that said, were there teams that were just completely off you because of the velo or it was oh, for pretty sure. much, that's amazing to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would say there were only a couple teams that I actually really did talk to. You know, I, I didn't know when I was going to get drafted and where, but yeah, there were there were only a few teams I was aware of that were really interested. Uh, I'm actually uh, curious to get your answer. I think I know what it's going to be, but we've asked everybody this, and I've had some surprising answers. What's more important, stuff or command? Oh man, command, one hundred percent, all day. Yeah. yeah, not even close. Yeah, because you can command a baseball. Yeah. If you can command it, then with stuff. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Now, now you're elite. You know what I mean? But yeah. if you can command a baseball with whatever stuff you have, you at least yeah. have a chance to be successful. Well, I think it's like, a, it's yeah. kind of a deceiving question too, because you obviously have command, but you, you have stuff too. Like we just had a 15 minute discussion about cut changeups that nobody else can throw. So it's totally, it's, totally. It's, but if I were to go up there and just throw the cut changeup and it were just to end yeah. up anywhere, you know, it, it could definitely, it definitely is going to get hit. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Um, so yeah. I'm, I'm also curious. So, uh, You've, you've obviously been with the Rangers organization. You've been in college. You've been in pro ball and, uh, with the Cubs as well. Number one trait of coaches that have been impactful for you. How have they helped you? What, what have you noticed about mm, them? I guess I would say they've said, uh, they've had the difficult conversations or they've, you know, pushed me in ways, uh, in, that weren't comfortable. You mm-hmm. know, every, every coach that I've had, it's my personality. I'm, I'm pretty introverted and quiet, but mm-hmm. for some reason, having a coach that will actually just tell me how it is or, you know, Hey, you're, this is not good. This pitch isn't yeah. good. You're not doing this right. The people that have just told me how it is and you know, that given me the best advice that's helped me the most in my career. That's I haven't heard that one before. I like that. You know, yeah. the success is in the struggle, right? Exactly. hundred percent. You learn that's more awesome. in the struggle for sure. Yeah. Nice man. Well, this was awesome. Uh, lots of really, really good stuff. Um, normally this is the part where we tell folks to check you out on social media. You have zero social media. So we we won't tell them to check you out at Wrigley Field in 2020. Perfect, uh, exactly. We'll wish you well for the rest of the offseason, man. Thanks so much for doing this. Cool. Of course, man. You got it. Anytime. Thank you. All right. You got it. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions. Just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.